Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign manager gives bombshell testimony today and the judge clears the courtroom. President Biden touches down in South Korea in his first trip to Asia as president. The pandemic and the war in Ukraine have kept Biden busy, but now he's turning his attention back to the east. On his to-do list, strengthening alliances and countering China. Shortly after Oklahoma passed a strict abortion law bill, Vice President Kamala Harris called it outrageous. But the Biden administration has few options to stop states from banning abortion. California Democrat House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been barred from receiving Holy Communion in her home city of San Francisco. The region's Archbishop says she will be denied until she publicly renounces her support for abortion and repents. Disney unveils a new Pride clothing line for kids amid a battle over children's content and the company's fight to maintain its piece of the pie. And we hear from the CEO of a new streaming platform. Breaking news tonight, a federal judge has temporarily blocked the Biden administration from ending Title 42 on May 23rd. Title 42 is a public health order that's been used during the pandemic to expel a majority of migrants at the southern border. The judge said the CDC improperly terminated the order, such as by circumventing the required public comment process. The judge's order is in response to a lawsuit by two dozen Republican states. Both Republicans and Democrats have raised concerns that ending Title 42 will exacerbate the border crisis. Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign manager Robert Mook took the stand today and testified that Clinton personally approved sharing the false Trump-Russia theory with the media. During cross-examination, Mook said Clinton approved passing the story off to a reporter even though campaign officials were not totally confident in the accuracy of the information. He added that a reporter would be able to vet the information and then decide whether to print it or not. After the testimony, District Judge Christopher Cooper cleared the jury from the room and held a sidebar discussion with the prosecutors and defense attorneys. It is not clear what they discussed. The president has approved, has arrived in South Korea, marking the start of a five-day visit. The trip will also take him to Japan and represents his first journey to Asia as president. His first stop was a massive Samsung electronic semiconductor plant, underscoring a message of economic security with an eye on China and the war in Ukraine. NTD's Chen Wu has more. President Biden arrived in South Korea on Friday in his first trip to Asia as president. The pandemic and Russian invasion of Ukraine have kept the Biden administration preoccupied. But now the president is turning his attention back to Asia. So much, so much of the future of the world is going to be written here in the Indo-Pacific over the next several decades. Biden opened his Asia trip by addressing the computer chip shortage that has plagued the world economy. He toured a Samsung plant that will serve as model for a $17 billion semiconductor factory that the Korean company plans to open in Texas. Greeting Biden at the chip plant was South Korea's new president, Yoon Suk-yul, who took office just over a week ago. President Biden's visit to the Samsung chip plant is a good opportunity for us to remind ourselves of not only the economic and security importance of computer chips, but also the significance of the global strategic alliance between South Korea and the U.S. through these chips. Compared to his predecessor, the South Korean leader has expressed a more confrontational approach toward North Korea and a tougher stance on China. Biden remarked that economic shockwaves from Russia's war in Ukraine have further spotlighted the need to secure critical supply chains so that the U.S. economy and national security are not dependent on countries that don't share our values. This comes as the Allies face a growing threat from North Korea's nuclear weapons and missile programs. U.S. intelligence says there's a genuine possibility that North Korea will conduct another ballistic missile or nuclear test during Biden's visit. 
The country's authoritarian leader Kim Jong-un is trying to enforce the idea that the North is a nuclear power and that he's determined to negotiate security and economic concessions from a position of strength. Also watching Biden's visit is China. The U.S. and its allies rely on the communist-led country as a trade partner, yet U.S. officials increasingly frame China as a competitor. That's as shared economic interests have often revealed conflicting value systems. Later in the agenda, Biden on Tuesday will meet in Tokyo with fellow leaders of the Indo-Pacific Alliance known as the Quad, a group that includes Australia, India and Japan. The four nations share concerns over China's growing regional assertiveness and increasingly capable armed forces. Meanwhile, China views the grouping as a part of a U.S.-led push to impede its economic and political rise and a roadblock in its ambitions to annex Taiwan. Biden wants to demonstrate that he can handle problems in both the East and the West and that the U.S. has the ability to uphold its democratic values across the world. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Coinciding with President Biden's visit to Asia, China is holding military exercises in the disputed South China Sea. Chinese authorities said the drills began Thursday and will continue through Monday. And Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby is joining the National Security Council at the White House. This is according to a person familiar with the matter. Kirby had served as the Pentagon's top spokesman and for the State Department during the Obama administration. According to CNN, Kirby had been considered for the new White House press secretary, but the role ultimately went to Corinne Jean-Pierre. CNN also says Kirby was cited last week getting a tour of the White House's West Wing and that he told people it was his first time there despite years of government service. Oklahoma could soon have the strictest abortion ban in the U.S. Lawmakers in the state passed a bill that almost totally bans the procedure. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Lawmakers in Oklahoma approved a bill on Thursday that prohibits all abortions in the state with very few exceptions. This after a Supreme Court draft opinion was leaked earlier this month, suggesting the court is moving to overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion nationwide. The bill could reach Governor Kevin Stitt's desk as early as next week. We still hope and we, we still have faith that there's an opportunity and a possibility that our Oklahoma State Supreme Court, that's the court where we file our cases, um, will um, find in our favor and strike these bills down or these laws down. The governor says he will sign any anti-abortion bill sent to his desk. The law will take effect immediately after he signs it. Abortion clinics in the state say they will stop performing the procedure as soon as the bill is signed. The new legislation bans abortion from the moment of fertilization. When we try to force the issue to reduce the abortion rate, all we do is disperse it elsewhere. Exceptions will only be made in cases of rape or incest reported to law enforcement or in a medical emergency. The bill does not apply to the use of birth control or morning-after pills. Republican Representative Wendy Stearman, the author of the bill, says the argument used to be about when the point of life begins, but has now shifted to the possibility of the child having a difficult life. Based on that argument, it makes more sense, in my opinion, to offer abortion services up until a child is 18 years old. Because until they reach a reach adulthood, we don't know if they're going to be a productive member of society. Oklahoma enacted a law earlier this month that bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. The law allows private citizens to sue anyone who helps terminate a pregnancy. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Weeks after the Supreme Court draft opinion leaked, the debate on abortion is getting heated. Vice President Kamala Harris on Thursday condemned Oklahoma's new abortion bill. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has the details. Oklahoma lawmakers just approved the nation's most comprehensive abortion ban. It bans abortions from the moment of fertilization. Republican Governor Kevin Stitt is expected to sign it. The bill makes exceptions for medical emergencies or if the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. It's outrageous and it's just the latest in a series of extreme laws around the country. 
Harris was speaking with abortion providers, saying they are, quote, on the front lines of this war on women's rights. The virtual meeting came weeks after the leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion. That draft ruling indicates that the nation's highest court is expected to overturn Roe versus Wade. Justices will issue their final ruling in the next six weeks. But some Republican states are already laying the groundwork to ban abortion. Now few options are left for the Biden administration. And on top of this, a pro-abortion bill failed last week in the Senate. The Archbishop of San Francisco has barred House Speaker Nancy Pelosi from receiving Holy Communion. This is due to her support for abortion. The move marks an escalation in a decades-long tension over abortion between the Catholic Church and Democratic politicians. Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione said Friday that Pelosi should not be admitted to Holy Communion in San Francisco, nor should she present herself to receive the Eucharist. Cordiglione explained that Pelosi, who describes herself as a devout Catholic, has repeatedly ignored his efforts to speak with her about abortion advocacy, which he called, quote, the grave evil she is perpetrating. The archbishop stated that the church's teaching is clear. Abortion is a moral evil. He says Pelosi will be barred from Holy Communion until she publicly repudiates her support for abortion and repents. In 2019, Facebook implemented a policy that prohibited employees from talking about abortion on the company's internal messaging platform. Now, employees want to get rid of the policy. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details. For three years, employees at Facebook, now Meta, have been banned from talking about abortion at work. But after the leaked Supreme Court Roe v. Wade opinion, they want to talk about it. First Amendment specialist Kevin Goldberg says Meta may not have to change its policy. As a basic matter, any private employer being a private company is not bound by the First Amendment and can choose what it will allow its employees to say and not say and act accordingly, including by disciplining those employees. Meta's respectful communication policy prohibits opinions or debates about abortion being right or wrong. It also doesn't allow political, religious, or humanitarian views on abortion. Goldberg said absent an employment contract or a law that protects employees' speech, a private employer can discipline employees for what they say. The biggest law that I can think of is the National Labor Relations Act, which says employees are permitted to engage in what we call protected and concerted activity in the workplace. They can bind together, come together, to speak about matters that affect the conditions of their employment. But that does not sound like what is happening here with regard to Meta. He said some states have laws that can help. State laws, however, do offer more protection and in some instances would say, well, an employee cannot be fired for their political views, or for exercising their right to free speech. Meta does allow employees to talk about immigration and transgender rights. Goldberg said if Meta is bound by state law, it cannot pick and choose which topics employees can talk about. But ordinarily, private companies like Meta are not bound by the First Amendment. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Issues like abortion can be divisive for everyday Americans. But a nonprofit organization is trying to depolarize the national conversation. The host of NTD's The Nation Speaks, Cindy Drucker, had a chance to speak with their events director to find out more about how to bridge the gap between Democrats and Republicans. Here are the details. Randy Leoz from Braver Angels says his organization is focused on depolarizing American politics. He says a lot of relationships have been torn asunder by the past few years, and Braver Angels wants to try and help people understand each other on the other side of the political aisle. This country is built upon variety and diversity of viewpoints, diversity of backgrounds, uh, and, and when we come to appreciate that, we realize that our perspective is inherently narrow as human beings, right? So. Coming to understand somebody else's perspective is inherently valuable, and we really emphasize that. Braver Angels hosts workshops with an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. They help facilitate conversations, but also make sure that questions do not come with an accusation or assumption. He says people tend to find out that they are closer to the other side than they thought, and that their own side is not monolithic. People really like to ask about someone's journey. Uh, and there are life experiences that have brought them to 
you know, their certain beliefs. Story is so powerful for us. It, it helps us to understand the way that our world works. And when we put our beliefs in the form of a narrative, in terms of how we've gotten there, how we've come to understand the world, it really helps to give others a window into our thinking. Braver Angels created this diagram to illustrate different types of feelings people might have for political adversaries. The organization's goal is to help people move from hatred to respect and appreciation. So what advice do they have? Before you offer your own perspectives to someone, really try to connect with them by listening to their perspective. It's so much more likely that someone is going to hear your perspective if you first make sure that they feel heard, right? So we say connect first and then offer your perspective. You can watch the full interview with Randy Liaz on Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time here on NTD. At least 135 educators have been arrested so far this year for child sex crimes. That's according to a new analysis. The crimes range from child pornography to sexually abusing students. Here are the details. Since the beginning of 2022, 135 teachers and teachers' aides in the U.S. have been charged for child sex-related crimes. This is based on analysis conducted by Fox News, which looked at arrests covered in local news stories. Arrests that weren't publicized were not counted in the report, meaning the true number may be even higher. The arrests took place in 41 states between January 1st and May 13th, working out on average to about an arrest a day. According to the analysis, 102 of the cases, or 76 percent, involved alleged sex crimes against students. Of the arrested educators, 117 were teachers, 7 were substitute teachers, and 11 were teachers' aides. The alleged crimes include child pornography, child molestation, and rape. Terry Schilling, president of the American Principals Project, responded to the analysis, saying obviously the vast majority of teachers are good. However, when schools began to teach radical sexual indoctrination, it attracted the obvious, predators. This is why sexuality should be completely separated from schools. Investigative journalist Christopher Rufo, who specializes in education, called for a full federal investigation. The last federally commissioned study into educator sexual misconduct was in 2004, nearly two decades ago. The report by the U.S. Department of Education found that 9.6% of students experienced educator sexual misconduct during their time at school. And when they're not at school, what are kids watching? Is it the same kind of content you grazed on as a young one? While the Walt Disney Company increases its messaging around sexuality, a Replace Hollywood movement appears to be striking back. I spoke to Neil Harmon, the CEO of a new kind of movie studio called Angel Studios, to learn more. Neil, welcome. Disney's including increasingly overt LGBT sexuality in their content, and at the same time, its ratings have been dropping and stocks are plummeting. Do you think this is happening because of their content? Um, it could be their content. It also could be um, leaks that have occurred recently in the media that have uh, communicated some of the executives' intentions inside of Disney. And, and so people who have had some mistrust of Disney or those who haven't uh, have increased the level of mistrust they've had towards the Disney brand because the, the values that these content executives have communicated are not matching their own family values. And this for them is a problem and, uh, and it will affect part of the market as it has. Now let's talk about Angel Studios. You say that you offer an alternative for viewers. How does your content differ from Disney's? Well, our Angel stands for Angel Investors. And we name the company after the people who back the shows that get made on Angel. And the people want the shows so much that they fund the shows and they help them get to market. So far, the results have been astounding. And the shows that are that are making it through the crowd and being funded by the crowd are record-breaking shows. So we're very, very excited about this. And we think that the people will make better decisions about which content will succeed than a few executives at Disney or in Hollywood. And what kind of content comes out of this crowdsourcing? 
it's stories that matter, that people care about being made. They want them to be told. And importantly, every single piece of content has a mission behind it. In the case of The Chosen, the mission was to reach over a billion people with an authentic Jesus. In the case of Tuttle Twins, it's to meet, or is to reach over 100 million children and their parents with the principles of freedom. And every single one of these projects that are coming have a similar mission, whether that's freedom or integrity of, of, our, our, of our systems. These are th things that people feel are worth fighting for, that have a mission behind them that's worth getting behind. And so there's, there's stories that really matter in our society. Neil Harmon, thank you. Thank you. Angel Studios just announced $100 million in new content. And Neil says you can see all their content free at angel.com. And coming up, New York City is investing $900 million in speed cameras and other traffic safety precautions. But not everyone agrees and some cite privacy issues. And the man who attacked comedian Dave Chappelle on stage is charged with attempted murder, but it's for an unrelated case. He's accused of stabbing his roommate last year. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. New York City Mayor Eric Adams reached a deal with state lawmakers about speed cameras. He says $900 million will be invested in street safety, but people are raising various concerns. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. A speed cam that only works during the day. It shuts off after 10 p.m. That's what most of them do here in New York City. That's because they're usually next to schools. So lawmakers argued they aren't needed at night. Adams says most fatal crashes happen at night, so the cams should be on. After reaching an agreement with state lawmakers, the city plans to have them on 24-7 and invest $900 million to redesign 1,000 intersections. But some have raised privacy concerns about speed cams in the past. The Berkeley Journal of Criminal Law wrote in 2021 that some cams capture millions of licenses that pass them by, as many as 1,800 licenses per minute with potentially grave implications for nationwide government surveillance. Staten Island Assemblyman Michael Riley used to work in law enforcement. He told me in a statement about the mayor's plan that this is nothing more than the city increasing their revenue stream. They lowered the city speed limit to 25 and they increased the number of speed cameras. It's Cream's Cam Cam. Although Adams reached an agreement with state lawmakers, the New York City Council, which is divided on the issue, still has to agree to the new deal. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. Former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio is running for Congress. De Blasio made the announcement Friday on Twitter. He says he's running in the 10th Congressional District of New York. De Blasio served two terms as New York City Mayor from 2014 until last year. His run comes after a redrawing of the 10th District, which pushed Democratic Congressman Gerald Nadler into a neighboring area. New York's primaries were originally set for June. They have been moved to August due to legal matters involving the district's mapping. And after Grubhub's disastrous free lunch promo earlier this week, which left New Yorkers hungry and restaurants in the cold, another food delivery giant is jumping in the ring with more freebies. NTD's Phil Zoe has the details. Uber Eats is offering free lunch to some of its users. As long as it's your first order, you can eat up to $25 of free food. No, where's my lunch? Some of the offers read, there's no such thing as a free lunch, along with a winking emoji, poking fun at the Grubhub disaster promo that happened earlier this week. Grubhub offered free lunch to all New Yorkers on Tuesday, but restaurants were flooded with more orders than they could handle. Grubhub said they received 6,000 orders every minute during the promo. The result? Orders were canceled. Restaurants froze their services, and food that was prepared wasted because even delivery guys were overwhelmed. I spoke to New Yorker Alex, who was hanging out with his dog, Bruno, in Chelsea, Manhattan. I think that seems like a very poorly thought through uh, promotion. Not everyone is biting on the new offer from Uber Eats either. 
If you're losing faith in delivery services, just do what Alex does. I was uh, home and my wife had brought uh, provisions and they were there in the fridge and I helped myself. Grubhub said all customer orders that were canceled will get a refund and that restaurants wouldn't get charged for a cancellation if it wasn't their fault. Phil Zhou, NTD News, New York. Amidst the ongoing infant formula shortage, desperate parents have been looking for alternatives, including one of the lesser-known ones, Mother's Milk Banks. NTD spoke with one milk bank that's seeing a surge in demand. Few people knew about Mother's Milk Banks until the recent infant formula crisis. Mother's Milk Banks have been saving tiny lives with medical conditions for decades, and now they're saving healthy babies too. We have seen about a 20% increase due to the formula shortage in families reaching out and asking for that milk to use at home. And luckily, we've also seen a 20% increase in donations. Summer Kelly, executive director at Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes, said the nonprofit organization had seen a surge in donations since the pandemic began. And now that families are watching the news, they're hearing about the formula shortage, we've seen another really big increase in donors reaching out, moms reaching out, wanting to help these families through the formula shortage. That 20% increase, we are at about 50,000 ounces a month right now. The Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes is one of 31 facilities in the Human Milk Banking Association of North America, or HMBANA. Her location serves Illinois and Wisconsin. About 75% of the milk that we dispense goes directly to the hospital, but that leaves 25% of the milk for families at home. Some of these families have children with medical needs, and some of these families are simply struggling to find formula right now. Kelly said HMBANA supplied 9 million ounces of pasteurized human milk in the U.S. and Canada last year. Because of its target customers, the organization has strict criteria to screen out donors who smoke, drink alcohol, or have communicable diseases. The 28 U.S. facilities are all FDA registered as food manufacturers. Really the cornerstone of safety is pasteurization. In Himbana's 37-year history, there's never been a case of infant harm due to any milk uh, collected or dispensed at a Himbana-accredited milk bank. So we have an excellent safety record. But human milk supply is not unlimited. It's not a long-term solution for the formula shortage. We can provide short-term emergency milk for these families. Um, it's not really ideal for you know months of supplementation, but just for a couple days. The FDA expects Abbott's baby formula plant in Michigan to resume production in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, the FDA will consider the importation of infant formulas on a case-by-case -case basis to ease the supply situation. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News. The Los Angeles County District Attorney is charging the man they say attacked comedian Dave Chappelle earlier this month, but for a different crime. The district attorney says they charged 23-year-old Isaiah Lee with one count of attempted murder. Lee allegedly stabbed his roommate during a fight at a transitional housing apartment in December. The victim had previously reported the assault to police and identified Lee as the man who attacked Chappelle on stage at the Hollywood Bowl on May 3rd. The DA stated the publicity generated by the attack on Mr. Chappelle helped police solve this crime. Lee has pleaded not guilty to assaulting his roommate. The district attorney says the attack on Chappelle has been referred to the Los Angeles City Attorney as a misdemeanor assault case. And coming up next, a group of young people, including some big names, held a protest outside of Facebook's headquarters. They protested censorship that they and many others say exists on the platform. And in the NFL, taxpayer-funded stadiums have become the norm. NTD's Dave Martin speaks to an expert who weighs the benefits of these agreements. That and more coming up on NTD News. With the advancement of digital technology and social media, people have easily the freedom to share what they have to say to others across the globe. Or can they? On Thursday evening, people questioned one tech company's impact on freedom of speech. Here's more from NTD's David Lamb. 
We're here at Meta's headquarters, formerly known as Facebook, where dozens of protesters gathered earlier today to hear stories about those who face censorship from social media and they were demanding freedom of speech. You know, I was deplatformed, many, many of you over here, from the internet for vaccine misinformation. Humanity Against Censorship organized the rally. Members of Children's Health Defense came to show support, including its founder, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. But I was told by Facebook, you know, they have an appeals process. The appeals process is actually a very good process. The judges and panels at appeals process are law professors from all over the world, very prestigious law professors. A lot of them are people I know. And if they actually convened in a panel and looked at my case, there's no way that they're going to uphold my eviction. So what did Facebook do? It said, you can't take advantage of that. You cannot appeal. According to Facebook, the company will hide or remove content that goes against its community standards. So they would not let me appeal. Why is that? Because they knew that I have never broadcast any vaccine misinformation. We have at CHD an enormous investment in fact-checking. One speaker said she was part of a Facebook page where people could reach out to one another for emotional support, but some people's messages for help didn't go through. But the tragedy is because of Zuckerberg, because of the censorship, we have also lost many lives. I myself know of 21 people that have killed themselves because they have not been able to access the appropriate emotional support that they needed at the time they needed it most. An author and CEO from the East Coast flew in for the rally. Why are they doing this, right? Why is Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, I'm five times deplatformed. So I am now CEO of a tech company, which means that I understand how tech CEOs think to some extent. And the human, this space where human beings are together, unmediated by digital technology, this is their competition. Yeah, I've been, I've been censored by Facebook. My wife has been constantly kicked off of Facebook. Um, they put her back on, then they take her back off, then her business has been taken down from Facebook. They do a legislation transparency business constantly. So within our whole household, we've been censored. At the end of the rally, the group marched to the company's iconic thumbs up sign for a photo. If you are um, in any way affected by censorship um, with any kind of social media platform, including Facebook or Meta, um, speak up and, and be a champion for, uh, for, for free speech. Deplatform those platforms like Facebook who are muzzling people when they speak up for truth, freedom, life or justice. Move to another uh, platform. Entity reached out to Facebook for comment. David Lamb, Entity News, California. State lawmakers have blocked a bill that would have ended oil and gas drilling off the coast of California later this decade. Despite opposition from officials and environmental groups, the rigs will continue producing crude oil. NTD Cynthia Kai reports. A bill that aimed to ban offshore drilling off California's coast died before making it to the Senate Appropriations Committee this week. Introduced by Senator Dave Min, Senate Bill 953 would have required the state conduct a study on oil and gas leases in state waters by the end of next year. The end goal is to phase out offshore drilling completely. I think it's clear that the risks posed by offshore drilling are not justified by their benefits. Offshore oil production in both federal and state waters in California accounts for less than 0.3% of annual production in the United States. That's not even a drop in the bucket. To give some context, the U.S. produced an average of 171.5 billion gallons of crude oil in 2021. California's offshore drilling accounted for about 5.5 billion gallons. Based on government data, California's oil production can approximately refuel all the gas-running cars in the state eight times per year. The bill would have initiated negotiations with oil and gas drilling leaseholders for an agreement to end their leases and production. 
The only way to prevent more oil-related disasters like the one we experienced in October of 2021 is to tr transition off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. However, many labor groups and oil and gas companies worried about a loss of jobs and unfavorable alternatives. Uh, be mindful also that reducing in-state climate-compliant crude production means replacing it with tankered crude from foreign countries, and tankers are offshore oil. Ta a tanker spill in Southern California would be catastrophic. Others believe ending in-state oil production may contribute to higher gas prices in California. This bill does nothing to curb the demand of local energy, including uh, oil, uh, gasoline. Uh, this bill does not mitigate risk. The bill comes on the heels of an October 2021 spill off the coast of Southern California's Huntington Beach. Federal prosecutors allege the spill was likely due to an anchor striking an underwater pipeline months earlier. SB 953 passed the Senate Natural Resources and Water Committee last month in a polarizing vote. Five senators voted in support, with two against and two abstaining. But Min's bill died Wednesday to a gatekeeper panel. The panel sifts through hundreds of bills to decide whether legislation with a fiscal cost to the states will advance to the full Senate. Min's SB 953 did not come up for a vote, which in effect, killed the measure the day before its deadline. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced back on March 28th that an agreement had been reached to keep the Buffalo Bills in Buffalo with a new $1.4 billion stadium, of which $850 million will come from taxpayer money. Now, the Bills aren't the first team to use public funds to build their own stadium, but the dollar amount is the highest on record, topping the $750 million that Las Vegas used to lure the Raiders just two years ago. According to Governor Hochul's statement, the investment will be recouped by the economic activity the team generates. I spoke with Dr. Alicia Cintron, who holds a PhD in Sport Administration and researches urban planning and stadium development about how beneficial these deals are to the taxpayers that fund them. She says, among other things, it depends largely on whether the stadium will host events year-round or not. And for an NFL team specifically, they're hosting eight to ten games a season. Maybe they'll host the Super Bowl once or twice in its in its um, lifespan, but that's it's not enough to pay for, at least in this case, $850 million of, of investment. Dr. Sintron points to Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis, where the NFL's Colts play, as a good example of a publicly funded dome facility that hosts other events, like NCAA basketball tournaments and conventions that bring in people, and therefore revenue, from outside the city and state. When you're, when you're talking about economic impact, you're talking about new money and new tax revenue that's coming into the community, not redistributed um, tax dollars or, or spending. If I lived in Indy and I was going to go out for dinner as opposed to or um, go to a game as opposed to go out to dinner, I'm just shifting my money versus it being new money, right? She also points out that the 10,000 union jobs Hochul touts will be used to build the stadium will be temporary yet says there's something to be said for the civic pride that comes with keeping the team, and maybe that's what should be touted instead. This is something that brings locals um, immense pride, so just stick with that. I mean, everything I've seen for the, um, from the governor's office in New York says, like, 10,000 union construction jobs. Well, those are temporary also. Like, the, the stadium's going to get built, and then, and then what? The bill's new stadium agreement includes a 30-year commitment to keep a team in Buffalo. No ETA was given on when the stadium construction would be complete. In the NBA tonight, Golden State hosts Dallas looking to take a 2-0 lead. The Warriors won the opener by running away with the game in the second half as guard Andrew Wiggins did an admirable job in slowing down Luka Doncic. Doncic hit just 6 of 18 shots as the Mavs as a team made just 36% of their field goals. 
On the ice tonight, the Hurricanes host the Rangers looking to go up 2-0. A win tonight for Carolina would mark their sixth straight playoff home win, which would be the most since Nashville did so in 2017, en route to making the Stanley Cup Finals. Meanwhile, Edmonton visits Calgary looking to tie up the Battle of Alberta at one game apiece. The Flames' 9-6 win in Game 1 marked the highest scoring playoff game in 29 years. That's all for sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, an investigation finds NBA team owners have $10 billion worth of investments in China. And Chinese telecom giant Huawei is losing an important market. Canada is banning them. That and more after this short break. team owners have big personal investments in China. ESPN's investigation comes as NBA games quietly return to China's TV screens after a three-year ban. They were banned after one general manager spoke out against the Chinese Communist Party's human rights abuses in Hong Kong. The NBA distanced itself from the general manager's comments at the time. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. More information on the NBA's financial ties to China. 40 principal NBA team owners, as a group, have over $10 billion linked to China, according to the ESPN analysis. It concludes that their money would be at risk if they got on the wrong side of the Chinese regime. It's very simple. It comes down to, to money. Fred Roccafort is an attorney at Harris Bricken, which represents many companies that do business in China. Roccafort says companies like the NBA are essentially blinded by, by the money to such an extent that they're willing to overlook any other consideration. ESPN hired Strategy Risk, a firm that researches the risks of doing business in China, to look into the team owners. Strategy Risk says Miami Heat owner Mickey Arison has over $375 million tied to China, partially through his company Carnival Corp., the biggest cruise operator. Chinese nationals represented 8% of its passengers before the CCP virus hit. Memphis Grizzlies owner Robert Perra is both founder and majority shareholder of tech firm Ubiquity, which manufactures most of its products in China. Brooklyn Nets owner Joe Tsai has 53.5% of his net worth tied to China. Tsai is the executive vice chairman of Alibaba. Sacramento Kings owner Paul Jacobs has a big stake in Qualcomm, which earned two-thirds of its annual revenue in China last year. Jacobs used to be Qualcomm's CEO. Houston Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta is the president of Landry's, which operates 10 restaurants in China. Strategy Risks estimates his total exposure is $160.3 million. Philadelphia 76ers owner John Joshua Harris co-founded and owns 20% of Apollo Global Management, which has three subsidiaries in Hong Kong and one in Shanghai. And of course, Charlotte Hornets owner Michael Jordan's brand, Air Jordan, is very big in China. The NBA has a hard decision to make. Bob Bilbrook is the CEO of Capture, as well as an avid basketball fan. Bilbrook says, You have to decide, you know, are we, an, are we a U.S. American brand or are we a world brand and we're okay with, you know, the things that are going on. ESPN's analysis came out out as NBA games have quietly returned to China's state-run TV on the eve of the NBA playoffs. Fredrickson, NTD News. Chinese telecom giants Huawei and ZTE are taking another hit. Canada is now banning equipment from the two companies from its 5G infrastructure because of security concerns. Canada's public safety minister says Huawei and ZTE equipment could present a high risk to its telecommunications sector. Canadian companies are now required to remove existing Huawei and ZTE 5G equipment by June 2024 and 4G equipment by December 2027. The U.S. has put Huawei on a trade blacklist, saying Huawei and ZTE have links to the Chinese military. Beijing, though, is not happy about Canada's action. The Chinese foreign ministry said it strongly opposes the move and will take appropriate measures. And now for the latest on the war in Ukraine. President Zelensky says Russian forces have completely destroyed the eastern Donbas region and that they are trying to kill as many Ukrainians as possible. Moscow says that it will soon get full control of Luhansk and as it ramps up its assault. NTD's Trevor Piper brings us this report. 
Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said on Friday that Russia and Russian-backed separatists would soon claim full control over the territory of the Luhansk region in eastern Ukraine. Shoigu also said that over 1,900 fighters have surrendered at the steel plant in Mariupol. The Russian armed forces, together with units of the People's Militia of the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, continue to expand their control over Donbass territories. Liberation of the Luhansk People's Republic is nearing completion. The defense minister said that since the start of the war, nearly 1.4 million people have been evacuated from Ukraine to Russia. He also said moves by Finland and Sweden to join NATO were part of an increase in military threats near Russia's western borders. We are actively improving the combat composition of the troops. By the end of the year, 12 military units will have been formed in the western military district. Ukraine's president said Russian forces had completely destroyed the eastern Donbass region and accused Moscow of carrying out senseless bombardments. This is a deliberate and criminal attempt to kill as many Ukrainians as possible, destroy as many houses, social facilities and enterprises as possible. This is what will qualify as the genocide of the Ukrainian people and for which the occupiers will definitely be brought to justice. The commander of Ukraine's Azov regiment said in a video posted on Friday that an order had been issued to stop defending Mariupol and save the lives of soldiers at the steel plant. The civilians have been evacuated. The heavy wounded received the necessary assistance and they were evacuated, to be later exchanged and delivered to territory controlled by Ukraine. With regard to the fallen heroes, the process continues, and I hope that in the near future, their relatives and their country will be able to bury their soldiers with honor. Glory to Ukraine. Ukrainian soldiers who surrendered at the besieged steelworks in Mariupol on Friday were taken by buses escorted by Russian-backed forces to a former penal colony in a town near Donetsk. It was unclear how many fighters remained inside. Ukrainian officials have declined to comment, saying it could endanger rescue efforts. Families of Ukrainian fighters at the steelworks held a press conference in Turkey on Friday to ask for help from Turkish authorities. They plan to establish an international organization to protect their loved ones in captivity. Trevor Piper, NTD News. Coming up, the NASA Mars rover is about to begin its next phase of work. The Perseverance rover discovered what is believed to be a delta and it will return rock samples back to Earth. We give you the details after this short break. Scientists working on NASA's rover mission on Mars are entering a new phase of their research. They're going to discover if there's life on the planet or not. Here are the details. The Perseverance rover arrived in February 2021 at a crater on Mars in search of rocks that could contain evidence of past Martian life. In the first year of its mission, the rover conducted reconnaissance of its surroundings and eventually discovered what research scientists confirmed as a delta. They tell us that a river once flowed into this crater, filled it up to form a lake, and then kept flowing to eventually form this delta out into the, out into the lake. Uh, and that's really exciting because we're telling us that there were, it was in fact a sustained ancient habitable environment where ancient microbial life could have lived. But it's also really great for uh, preserving biosignatures, preserving things like organic molecules from that ancient life. The rover will begin the next phase of work, which involves returning samples of rocks back to Earth. But the process is long and drawn out, and the samples won't make it back to Earth for closer inspection until approximately 2030. At some point soon, we are hopefully going to lay down a set of these tubes to cache them on the surface for eventual return to Earth. Uh, and that'll actually happen through a series of other missions. We call this Mars Sample Return. And that'll happen through, you know, another small rover coming out to grab the samples, putting them on a little rocket, which will launch into orbit, rendezvous with another satellite, and then eventually return that back to Earth. Meanwhile, another NASA mission on Mars known as InSight Mars Lander is expected to end by the end of this year. The lander had been operating on the Red Planet for four years. During the mission, the lander detected more than 1,300 Mars quakes. Good news is we, we learned something new about the soil of Mars. Uh, the bad news is we weren't able to get down more than just to, to, to be able to, to bury the mole itself, and we weren't able to get our heat flow measurement that, that we had wanted to get. 
Scientists have also been able to measure the depth and composition of Mars's crust, mantle, and core. The principal investigator of the team says they've been able to map out the inside of Mars for the very first time in history. Worth more than their weight in gold, 50 historic manuscripts from around the world are going on display in London, all featuring either gold paint, gold writing, gold leaf, or writing in pure gold. The exhibition opened at the British Library today. NTD's Joy Felix has more. A religious manuscript covered in pure gold. And this isn't the only one. At the British Library, an exhibition is displaying 50 manuscripts from 20 different countries, written in 17 languages and spanning over 1,500 years. Gold is, has been appreciated all over the world, and the reason is because of its very special qualities, that it's, it's malleable and it's soft, but it doesn't tarnish. Unlike silver, for example, which tarnishes over time, gold never changes. One of the smallest items on display is a mini octagonal quoran from Persia, dating from the 16th or 17th century, bound with covers of pure gold and coming with a white jade case. So the gleam of gold um, speaks a uniform language all over the world and this is um, proven by the things we see here we find that people whether you're in Cairo in the 14th century or in Constantinople in the 7th century you are using gold in the same way to express awe and reverence here this letter was addressed to King Richard II during the hundred years war between England and France it was sent by a French author and soldier calling for peace I think gold is being used here as a kind of language of diplomacy it's a way to honor Richard, but also to impress him with the, the wealth and the culture of the French court. And some manuscripts were written directly on pure gold, a guarantee of lasting records. Gold was quite commonly used in South and Southeast Asia for the most important secular texts, but very few have survived today because so often they were simply melted down um, for the value of the gold itself. So these are quite rare um, surviving examples, and that's why we're so thrilled to be able to put them on display. The exhibition, entitled Gold 50 Spectacular Manuscripts from Around the World, runs from Friday the 20th of May until October. Joy Felix, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.